All right, let's get going this morning on this Lord's Day. It's His day, right? <clears throat> let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day you have given us to uh, rest and worship. Father, I pray that you would guide this Bible study, that as we look into the words of the Holy Spirit and your Apostle, that they would be helpful to us, reminding us of things we may have known at one time and forgotten, or things that we need to think on deeper. And so help us by your Holy Spirit to grow in our faith and to mature and use this class. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> amen. So turn to Galatians 6. And we're nearly at the end. I think I have one more Sunday school after today, but I'm not going to make any promises. <clears throat> you never know. But we're going to look at uh, 14 through 16 and save 17 and 18 for next week. But let's go, I'll go back to 11. So I'm going to read from 6, 11 to 16. This is the word of the Lord. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for this cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation." And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so last time we were focused on verse 14 in that statement that the Apostle Paul makes about only boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so I want to I go back there and just wrap up some things that I didn't get to last time about why the cross is our only boast, and it has to do with the needs we have as sinners, why the cross would be our boast, because the needs that we have because we sin and we've sinned against God necessitate the cross, and so um, those, four, those four needs we have as sinners are this, or the consequences of our sins. Perhaps a better way to put it. One, we deserve to die as the penalty for sin. Death is the penalty that we have uh, earned for ourselves as a result of our sin. If you had no sins and you only had one sin, what would the penalty be? It would be death. Second, we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. So not only must we die, but that, that God is angry at sin, right? And we become the object of his wrath because of our sin. That's what we deserve. We deserve 
uh, to bear God's wrath against sin. Three, we are separated from God by our sins. Right? There's, a, there's a breach between us and God. There is um, where there should be warm fellowship, there's now dissonance and tension, there's separation. And then fourth, we are in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan, right? Being in bondage to sin um, and the kingdom of Satan prior to coming to faith, prior to regeneration, right? And so we, we deserve to die, we deserve to bear God's wrath, we're separated from God, and we're in bondage to sin, right? And then the four needs that are met by Christ's cross are pertain to those four, um, four things that uh, came about by our sin. First, sacrifice. To pay the penalty of death that we deserve because of our sins, Christ died as a sacrifice for us, right? He died. We deserve to die. He died, okay? He's our substitute. He's our repla- he's, he replaced us, right? And so he did that for us. You should be very thankful for that, right? That should, that should motivate you. That should wake you up in the morning. That should cause thanksgiving to break out of your mouth when you consider the fact that you deserved death and Christ sacrificed himself in your place. And then, second, propitiation, which propitiation removes from us the wrath of God that we deserved, And Christ died as a propitiation for our sins. So we deserve that wrath, but as a propitiation, he died. And and all of the wrath of God toward your sins, if you are in Christ, was poured out on Christ. And that's why he's a propitiation. So uh, when you propitiate someone, they go from angry to favorable, right? To against you to for you. That's what happens in propitiation. And then third, reconciliation. To overcome our separation from God, we needed someone to provide reconciliation, thereby bring us back into fellowship with God. And so um, on the cross, man and God are being reconciled through, through the cross, through the work of Christ. And then finally, redemption. We are redeemed. Because we are, as sinners are in bondage to sin and to Satan, we need someone to provide redemption and thereby redeem us out of that bondage, right? Free us from the slavery we were in. And so all of that happens right there on the cross. Those four necessary and important components to our salvation um, and to our to God's dealing with our sinfulness and our sins, okay? So sacrifice, propitiation, reconciliation, redemption. And so that's why our boast is in the cross. But think about how passive you are in relation to the cross, right? Whose work was it? Who did it? It's all all the Lord Jesus Christ doing this wonderful work on our behalf. That's the Christian faith. If you want to be a Buddhist, if you want to be uh, Hindu, if you want to be Roman Catholic, then you can say, yeah, the cross is, is neat, but I'd rather climb the mountain. I'd rather do the works. I'd rather uh, build my own merit 
right? Every other religion, Islam, whatever it might be, every other religion you look into, you're going to find that they have some aspect of faith, but it most definitely is connected to works and building your own merit, okay? That is not a part of, of the Christian faith. The merit is Christ to give out. Right, and what has this book been about? What's the, been the main topic of Galatians? No, that's James. But, I mean, it fits in. Justification is by keeping the ceremonial law. No. Justification is by keeping the moral law. No. Justification is by... Faith in Christ alone, right? Justification is by faith. And so the Judaizers wanted to come along and just tack on to faith in Christ. Circumcision, sacrifices, festivals, ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law. They just wanted to tack it on, right? They wanted Christians to to not disparage Moses, right? Not disparage the Old Testament. How could you How could you get rid of the Old Testament? Don't we have to take these things seriously? Well, the the definitive commentary on the Old Testament, the New Testament, tells us that things have changed, right? That ceremonial law has been done away with in Christ. The, The temple veil is torn in two, and it symbolizes that. So let's go on here and uh, keep moving forward. So I just wanted to hit that on the uh, topic of the cross. And so 14, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, what is his meaning in that? Why does he, why does he pivot there? And in what aspect has the world been crucified to the Apostle Paul? And the Apostle Paul crucified to the world. He didn't hang on a cross, right? I mean, there's no transaction like that. But what the crucifixion of Christ and Paul having put his faith in Christ, what has that done? What does he mean by this phrase? Yeah, he's dead to the world, and the world is dead to him, right? In what's, we get that he's dead to the world, right? What does that mean? What does it mean that the Apostle Paul is dead to the world? Um, that's not what I'm aiming for, but he is definitely doing that. He, he is following Christ come what may, right? What, what else? What else can we dig up? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, part of it is how, 
how he, um, the, you know, the world, the world to him is, is, he's been set free from having to consider the world as everything, right? And so the world has become dead to him, which means that a lot of the temptations that would come via the world have no power, right? They have no power over him. Yeah, yeah, okay, and that gets, right, right. I think that that is getting to what he, what the Apostle Paul is, is um, aiming at here, especially when he then says that, the, the, that he, right, is crucified to the world and the world is crucified to him. The world doesn't really find this justification by faith alone very attractive, does it? I mean, it's the most stupendous glory in the, in the world, and yet people hate it, right? Because what does it do? It removes every one of their boasts. And, and if there's anything we like to do as human, prideful, fallen human beings, it's to boast, right? And so when our boast is taken away, we feel like we've died. We feel like we don't have any reason to live. And so... When, when, it's, when it says that the world has been crucified to me, Paul, Paul is not attracted anymore by the, the power, the wisdom, the uh, intrigue, the politics of the world, right? And then, on the other hand, the world finds what he's peddling now to be terrible. And he's... They're, you know, Paul's dead to them. Paul's dead to the, to, uh, to them. So, yeah. Uh, on that, say, say it better than I did. That's good. That's right. That's right. It, I mean, it was the cross was the most shameful way that you could die. Um, Romans wouldn't even crucify Romans, right? Because it was so shameful. Um, and yet now, now that very shameful thing is the thing he boasts in. And the world and all of its power structures and all of its wisdom and all of its, its you know, glory is like dead to Paul. Just like in us, Right? The world has no influence, and we, we care, care, it's dead to us, isn't it? You know? We still get giddy when we meet famous people, don't we? <laughs> we all play that, what, whatever it is, six degrees of separation from the Bacon guy, Kevin Bacon. It's like we want proximity to fame, don't we? We want the boast. It's the boast. You know who I've had dinner with. I had dinner with John Cougar Mellencamp once, but that's a story for another day. Actually, he was just, a, he lives in Bloomington, and he was in the same restaurant as I was, but <laughs> I say I had dinner with him. He was two tables over, um, but that's, that's sort of the, 
I mean, honestly, that is a mindset that we have and in Christ need to be freed from. The world does need to be crucified to us, dead. It has, what motivates me is honoring and glorifying God, the purpose for which I was created, not to revel in all of the, the false glory of, of the world and what it peddles, the counterfeit glories that they peddle. Right? Um, Luther said, It is impossible that there should be any agreement between me and the world. Any agreement between me and the world. Calvin said, Those who are not crucified to the world, that is, those who desire to have a portion of some authority and to be important, and who ask to be held in honor and promoted, in other words, those who are diverted here, there and everywhere by their lusts, certainly do not know what it is to glory in the cross of Jesus Christ, or they begin in the wrong point. They are confused within themselves. They're confused within themselves. And so are you preoccupied with the things of the world? What do you value highly? If someone got on your your device and looked at your screen time, what would it indicate about your time? (laughs) And I'm not going to volunteer, right? What would it indicate about our priorities? What would it indicate about our time? And would that be an indication of the things that we think are important? Do, Do we give our time to things we consider important. I mean, is that a fair gauge? Like, if you do something two hours every day, is that important to you? What about one hour? (laughs) Let's figure out where it flips to not important anymore. Um, You could do something once a day that took you 10 seconds and it could be the most important thing in your life. Um, but, but do you value the world too highly? Do you, do you value, is there something that the world offers you that you think Jesus doesn't, that faith doesn't, that the church doesn't, that, you know, and what, you know, what, what is that thing? And you have to, it's different for us. For each of us, you have to examine yourself on these things. Is the world dead to you and you to the world? Or where, better yet, put it positively, where is the world alive to you? You know, what really, what really motivates you? Where is it alive? It's like, I couldn't give that up. Jesus, don't ask me to give that up. I can't, you know, I can't. You haven't really asked us to give up everything and follow you, have you? Certainly not, you know, betting on the horses. <laughs> That's a stupid example. I, I don't think anybody here bets on the horses, but you may bet on sports events. It's so easy now, right? It's in our pockets now, and it's legal in every state, and it's a scourge gambling is. Um, 
What you desire will reveal where the world is alive in you and not yet crucified. What you desire. What still appeals to you? <clears throat> what still appeals to you? Um, is Christ crucified truly the joy of your life? Contemplating Christ crucified, is that the joy of your life? Or do you only really truly have joy when you have a windfall of money come into your bank account for some reason, tax return? That's when you're really happy, right? You're happy because you can, you can buy a few things extra, you can pay the bills, you can be comfortable, you can have steak for at least one dinner, right? Aged steak with a nice mashed potato and sour cream and butter and salt and pepper on the side. Sounds really good. <laughs> Anybody bring that for the fellowship meal today? That'd be nice. But do you understand... Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, we really must work hard to make sure this is true of our lives and of our walk, right? That important word in Scripture, walk with the Lord, right? That, that day in, day out pursuit of maturity in the Lord. We really have to be careful about these things. And this is what it means when we come to the table, why we say you must examine yourself before you come to the table, it's like, okay, where's the world sunk its teeth into me? And just be realistic about it, because it happens to every one of us. We're all sinners, tempted by the world. But what's good to do is then to take that temptation and to name it before God in all of its awful heinousness. Name it exactly like it is and ask Him to forgive you why that has an influence. And sometimes when you're naming it before God, a sense of shame will come upon you. And that's good. That's, that's the grace of shame, right? So we must work hard to make sure this is true of our lives. The world is crucified to me and me to the world. Does the world, now from a different perspective, does the world look at you and say, um, what an oddball, I want nothing to do with you. Or does the world say, hmm, cool dude, fits right in, you know? He's, he's, he's cool. I could hang with him. Um, you know, um, this, is my, <laughs> this is my lesson this is my anti-covenant theological seminary lesson. The goal is not to be winsome. <laughs> the goal is to be odious. <laughs> it really is. I mean, we, again, I, I don't want to over-apply. Don't be a jerk. But if you live for Christ, if you speak of Christ, if you, if you um, make decisions that are based upon the Word of God and honoring Christ in your life, this is going to happen. You're going to be seen as odious a lot, right? Especially by your own family, fathers, right? Or your extended family, right? Or your friends or your classmates. If you do anything that smacks of faith, you suddenly look odious to those who are worldly. To those who are faithful, they will, they will encourage you, right? They will spur you on. 
And they will say, well done. Uh, that was a good example to me. So, um, when the world shows you its goods, are you dead to that influence? What makes your heart go pitter-patter? Anybody want to give examples? No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to ask for examples. They, we could give a million examples, right? I mean, the thing that I, the world really gets into me when, like this morning, when I don't have a heated steering wheel. I think this is, this is unfair suffering. I mean, seriously, this is how pathetic I am. It's like the next car I get, I'm not getting it unless it has a heated steering wheel. And we think we're, I think I'm entitled to it. Heated seats, definitely. I mean, I've got those now, though, so that, but heated steering wheel really makes a lot of sense. And then you just, it, it could be a million things like that, and then you just think, I'm entitled to that. Now, sometimes it's terrible things. I'm entitled to have six beers tonight, right? I'm entitled to look at images because my wife's angry with me. And so I'm going to resort to pornography, you know, and, and, um, and we always sort of keep those things close so that if we have to, you know, go to them, they're there. And, and that's our joy. That's, that's what makes us, makes our heart, you know, race. Is it money? Is it power? Is it respect? Is it pleasure? Is it comfort? Is it ease? Is it possessions? Is it promotions? Whatever it might be. Is that what you live for? not saying that there won't be times where you pursue and are ambitious and pursue money and promotions and things like that, but is that what you live for? Rather than Christ and the joy of your salvation and worship and being among the people of God, in fellowship, do you understand the riches that you have in Christ? Do you understand the riches you have in the church? Yeah, in this family. That you get to come together with people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and worship together. And then we get to go down the hall and eat together and, and we'll, we'll all be comfortable with one another. And that is riches. We have this whole giant family to live in together, to grow in Christ. You have riches here, and so, you know, make that more and more and more a part of your life, and then perhaps the battle will be less for those things that, of the world that draw you in. So the battle will never be over in this life. We realize that, right? You're not going to get to a point of sanctification where you can stop battling, right? We're not, we're not, Wesleyans who teach something approximating that, right? We know that this fight with the flesh, the fight between the flesh and the spirit will continue our entire lives. 
there will be a continuous struggle until you die. And then the struggle ends. And then it's, it's good from that point on. You're not able to sin. There is no struggle. Calvin said, May the passion and death of our Lord Jesus Christ be so effectual in our hearts that our desires do not quiver impatiently within us as once they did. Right? So intent on the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ, which we could meditate on every day of our lives from sunup to sundown and never plumb the depths of it, be so enamored with that that when the heart starts quivering after the world, we can just say, no, no, not today, flesh. Not today. Well, that's 14, now 15. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now, this is Paul wrapping up this letter, and he's, 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 saying, um, he's saying to the Judaizers, man, circumcision is nothing. Notice what he says there. Neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision. It is not anything. It doesn't have power. It will not save you. It, it, does, not, um, it does not do anything other than to delude you that you have progressed in your merits and, and made up some ground. It just deludes you in that work, right? And then he says, nor uncircumcision. Right? Circumcision nor uncircumcision. And he's just like, he's just making this point that it's like nothing, nothing outside of faith counts for anything. But then he says the new creation. What does he mean but a new creation? It seems like a weird thing to say. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation, that's something. What is, what is a new creation, or a new creature, or a new, what's that? Yeah, that's regeneration. That's the renovation of the Holy Spirit, right? That changed your, when, the, when, we, come, when we come to faith, when we are regenerate, the Spirit, the Spirit comes and lives within us, right? And we are, the, the old man is crucified, and the new man is alive, right? So there's this change that occurs. That even happens in, in covenant children, right? There should be a change that occurs. Now, it may be a change over the course of 15 years that they perceive it, but sometimes it's the change in a, in a moment. And indeed, the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration is a point in time. But there's that, that new man. This is, what, this is what Matt Chiflet preached on Romans 6, Right? Old man is crucified, the new man is alive. And so, 
Um, that's what he's speaking of there. Being circumcised or not being circumcised have nothing to do with salvation. Nothing. They have nothing to do with salvation. And you know how that's proven? The Apostle Paul gets Timothy circumcised. Why? Because he was trying to save him? No, because he was trying to fit into the culture. It's just a cultural decision, right? Just, just, just thinking about his audience. That's all it was. It had nothing at all to do with, Timothy, you've got to do this, because if you don't do this and become a Jew before you become a Christian, then you'll never be a Christian. No. No. It was a much more flippant decision than something like that. It, did not, it was not about Timothy's salvation. In other words, what is this saying? For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. It is not by your works, but by the Holy Spirit in you that you are saved. You must be born again. You must be a new creation. You must be a new creature. <clears throat> and how how can you do that? Can you, can you do that by, by um, running ultra marathons? Can you do it in any respect? Who does it? Not you. God does it. God chooses those, those whom he will uh, regenerate. And has chosen them. Verse 16, then, finally, and those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. All right. And those who will walk by this rule, this rule of it's not your works, it's faith, right? That rule, that rule of the whole book. Those who live by, by believing uh, in Jesus Christ... Guess what you get? You get peace and mercy. In this life, even. In this veil of tears, you can have peace. In this, in these, in this um, difficult, fallen world in which we uh, travail, uh, we, can have, we, we can know the mercy of God. You know, know his, his kindness to us. Know that His disposition from wrath to love has changed toward us. We can know that. And so those who live, but those who live by works, do you think they have either peace or mercy? No. No, they, they might be deluded that they have a little bit of mercy, right, if they overinflate the value of their works, but they have no peace. I mean, think of Luther. Luther, in, in, uh, before he's converted... And he's, he's uh, scrupulous about confessing his sins to his abbot. You know, and he, he knew he had to do it or he would not, it'd be demerits, not merits. And he would confess and confess and confess and confess and confess. Three, four hour long sessions of confessing his sins, trying to burn off his sins through confession and build his merit. And he had no peace. Not a bit of peace. And then he comes to faith, you know, 
Romans 1, 17. And guess what he had? <laughs> For the first time, peace. Peace. Some of you may want that peace, and you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's where that peace will be found. And then he says, the Israel of God, and upon the Israel of God. Why does he say that at the end of this letter? He, said that's, he doesn't use that phrase anywhere else. He uses it here. Um, the Israel of God. What do you think his point is in, in drawing back in Israel? Yes. It's an it's a hugely provocative statement. Right? It's it's provocative especially to the Judaizers who are trying to make the Gentiles become Jews before they're Christians, right? And so when he says Israel of God, these Judaizers are like not if they're not circumcised. Not if they're not following the ceremonial law. No, this is what we're trying to get them to do, is to become the Israel of God. And Paul just says, they are the Israel of God. Now, they are. Jews and Gentiles together. Whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. Whatever. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are the Israel of God. And so I, it's, a, it's a provocative statement here at the end, and um, it's meant, uh, I think it's, it's Paul taking one last swipe at them. Now he goes on from there and says, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me, <laughs> which I want to talk about next time. But that's his attitude right here. It's like, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Let no one else cause me trouble. And that's, that's when um, he's angry. I mean, he has angry words. This is one of the most intense books of the Bible, right? Paul does not hold back. I wish that they would even cut the whole thing off, right? He's like, I wish they would mess up those circumcisions. I wish, you know, I, I, I wish they'd emasculate themselves. And you've abandoned Christ. And, and um, he's, he's even, you know, earlier in the book when he's defending himself and his apostolic credentials, he's like, I don't even care what the other apostles said. He is hot in this letter. The Holy Spirit is, is inspiring him in his anger to write these words. And, um, and why? Why is he angry? Because it's a false gospel. Gospel of works is a false gospel, and those who follow it will be damned to hell. And so he's hot about it. He's not arguing infra and supralapsarianism. He's not even arguing about timing and mode of baptism. He's arguing about salvation, right? 
and the one way of salvation, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. And these Judaizers have come into the church after he preached there, and it was as if Christ was crucified right before their eyes, right? And he's, he's like, no, don't listen to these wicked men who have come in to devour you. They're peddling a false gospel. And so anyway, we'll come back to that next time. I'll be curious to see what Luther and Calvin say on those last two verses and how they apply it um, in their context. But that's it. Any other, we have a couple minutes for uh, comments or questions. Yeah, Joel. Joel Linton is with us, by the way, you know, from Taiwan. Yeah, not on the screen, but here he is in in the flesh. I'm just looking at verse 14. I was thinking before Luther became understood justification, if you were looking at verse 14, you would think he's a monk. You know, leave, leave the world. And, um, and I think we also can tend to be that kind of person too, which is, I don't want to be dead to the world anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's awful. We forget Mm. In Psalm 19, David saying, uh, God's uh, law is more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. Um, we should realize, wow, how amazing this beautiful gold is, how can it tarnish uh, what you can do with it at, or honey, how sweet, and you can enjoy that sweetness, but then that's just straw to God. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting. Yeah, and and that's um, you know you think of the early church fathers, Chrysostom. Chrysostom's early walk with the Lord, he went and shut himself in a cave for three years to fight his lust. And of course, if I shut myself in a cave for three years, all I would do is lust. You know, it's like you're provoking the flesh. Get married and have children, and enjoy the wife of your youth. God gives us the means by which we can overcome the world, and it's not merely by this, this separation of the world. He supplies all these wonderful, uh, wonderful gifts to us. And so, um, yeah, that, that, that uh, I think if, if I were in a monastery... Um, Man, I just don't know what what I would what my thought life would be like. I don't know what I would do. Uh, I think in most monasteries, I would imagine that rivalries between men probably sprung up that we just don't read about. But they're probably so uh, so intent on asceticism, and yet they're still in a society. They still are with others. And so I just think they would have had massive quantities of energy to take out on other people. And so um, you would have to, you honestly couldn't be in a monastery. You would have to be in solitary. You would have to be separated from everything. But even there, you're not away from your flesh. 
carry your flesh right along with you. So, um, the, putting to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the key. Not merely separating yourself from temptations. Although you should, should do that too. Um, all right. Anything else? Yeah, Zandy. I think because of the context, because of the circumcision and uncircumcision statement, because Paul throughout the letter is dealing with this Jews and Gentiles together question. It's the entire context of the letter, right? And so he can't, um, <clears throat> I, I, I think he's meaning to include Gentiles in that. And because, again, he's writing primarily to Gentiles, but the issue is Jews and Gentiles together and how they're supposed to relate. And um, so I think he's solving the dilemma by saying, look, you're Israel. It's one Israel. There's not a Jewish Israel. There's not a Gentile Israel. There's an Israel. That's right. That's right. Yep, Romans, what, 11? All right, good, okay. All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way it has stirred up our spirits this morning, and I do pray that we would walk in a manner worthy of Jesus that the world would be crucified to us and us to the world. You be honored in that. And uh, Father, we pray that you would guide our worship and our congregational meeting and our fellowship time. Uh, pour your blessings by your Spirit upon them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.